good morning. So welcome you all here. If you're joining us online, we're glad that uh, you're with us as well. Uh, glad to see you here on a uh, fall Sunday morning. I drove in this morning before the early service. It was still dark outside. We got upstairs, and uh, you could look out. If you've never been up in the loft, you should go check it out because you can look out over the hills to the north of us, and it's just like these clouds down between each little valley. And it, it was just such a cool reminder um, of such an awesome God that we serve. Uh, hey, uh, Got to give you a little warning before we jump into this. Uh, we're back in the Midwest for the first time in five years in the fall. So you get a scraggly voice all morning long. So uh, welcome to uh, allergy season for those of us who haven't acclimated just yet, okay? Uh, I'll do my best to kind of not make it gross for you, but no promises. <laughs> we are in this series that we've been in the past few weeks called Better Relationships. Uh, this series that we have looked at, uh, we're breaking down some of the basic fundamental aspects of relationships. Now, if you recall back a few weeks ago, we did a series called Together Again, and the purpose of that series, if you don't remember, was, wait for it, being together again. I, we're really creative with our titles around here. Uh, but we looked at that series as far as, as a church moving forward, being one, coming back together in, in the face of everything that we have in our world today. And we looked at several different aspects of the church through that. And so with this series, we decided to break it more down on the personal level. Because as a church, we, we say this, our goal, our mission, isn't just to get you baptized and get you a, a get-out-of-hell-free card. Our goal, our mission is to help you become more like Jesus. And one of the best ways that we can do that is by helping you grow and foster and, and live in these healthy, mature relationships that are grounded and rooted in Christ. And so over the first three weeks of this series, Brad has really broken down, I think, three of the most important foundational elements that we need in our relationships. He looked in week one about communication, and then he, he looked in week two at reconciliation for brokenness. Last week, he looked at forgiveness. And I want to just encourage you, if you missed any of those, or even if you were here and you just want a refresher, go back and listen to those on our podcast, go watch them on our YouTube or our Facebook page, because they are rich and they, they are deep. And, and often when we do a series, we'll build one week from the next. He's laid out three basics, and I'm going to build on all three of those today. And before I jump into this, you, you can see this on the screen, you can see this on your bulletins, we are talking about a pretty heavy topic today. We're talking today about toxic relationships. And so I want to just give you a couple of disclaimers before we jump into this today, because I, I feel this, and, and I, I've got to tell you, I, I spent the last few weeks on this sermon, and there is a heaviness that comes with it. As I was prepping it, there was a heaviness that came with it. Uh, toxic relationships are something that probably every one of us has experienced at some level, maybe some worse than others. And so as we get into this today, there's a very strong likelihood that this could trigger some painful or traumatic moments or memories in your past. And I just want to tell you that from the very beginning, I don't want you to get caught off guard with this. Uh, that is not my intention ever when I preach. My goal when I preach is to get into the word and let, 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 let the word speak to me and through me to you all. To find out whatever we're talking about, what the word says about it. And in the midst of that, sometimes we have to face 
painful and difficult memories and times in our lives. So that's a possibility as we go through this today. I just want to lay that out there. The second disclaimer is this. As we talk about these moments, if, if you've dealt with toxic relationships or you've dealt with toxic people, there's a very strong likelihood that a particular person or group of people will pop up in your mind. That, that can happen. It's natural. And so I want to ask you to do a couple of things with that. Number one, don't fixate on that person. Don't let that face or that name or that memory detract you from what God has in store for you today. But number two, kind of like what Brad said last week when he talked about forgiveness, if a person does pop into your mind, pray for him or her. Pray for that person. Pray for whatever happened. Pray that that restoration can happen. And I know that might be one of the more difficult things to deal with. Because as we look at this idea of toxic relationships, I've just got to kind of lay this out for you. This is one of the more difficult sermons I've written. Because if you just look up toxic relationships in the Bible, you don't find a lot. <laughs> like, like this isn't a topic that's in your concordance in the back of the Bible. This isn't a topic that the Bible just lays out, you know, and, and talks about. You've kind of got to look for the different aspects. And so as I, as I went through this the past couple of weeks, what I did was I started asking myself questions. And I, I'd write them down on a whiteboard or on a sheet of paper, and then I tried to answer them through my study. And, and this is probably the first time I've spent more time, not in commentaries, but in uh, blog posts and articles and trying to find out what different counselors and Christian counselors and mental health experts and, and all of these different professionals have to say about this topic to lay this out. And, and so what I want to do for you over the next, next little bit here is I'm going to go through those questions that I asked myself that I have tried to come up with some answers for. And, and, and I want to let you know, too, talking about toxic relationships, like this is a topic that could be an entire book, okay? This could be a whole series, and I'm going to try to wedge this in to the next few minutes here. So here's the first question that I asked myself. Just bluntly, what is a toxic relationship? Let's just get right to it. What is a toxic relationship? Well, let's look at the name, toxic. What does toxic mean? It means to be poisonous, Something that's toxic is poisonous. Something that isn't toxic just because you don't like it. Okay? I don't like unsweetened tea. That doesn't mean it's toxic. Okay? I'll argue that it might be, but so far I don't think it's actually toxic. Pepsi is not actually toxic. Okay? It's fake Coke, yes, but it's not actually toxic. Worst question you ever get asked, is Pepsi okay? Is fake money okay? No, it's not, all right? (laughs) But that doesn't mean those things are toxic. Yet the liquids under my kitchen sink are. I don't want my three-year-old getting into those. Okay? Bad things can happen if he does. A toxic relationship is one that will poison your heart and your soul. It's one that will poison the peace you have in your life. And it's also one that can then poison and damage other relationships you have as well. That's one of the most dangerous things about a toxic relationship is it often hurts more than just you. A healthy relationship is one that is selfless. It's one that you and another person or a group of people share a common goal or common purposes or common values or beliefs. Neither side is interested in benefiting at the expense of the other. But in a toxic relationship, that's the opposite. One side is interested in, in, in benefiting, and they don't care what happens to the other. Often there's abuse involved. Sometimes that's physical abuse, but 
More times than not, it's verbal or mental or emotional or spiritual abuse. I want to tell you something. These types of relationships are not and never have been a part of God's plan for the world. Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world in his perfect way. And then Genesis chapter 2 might be the most beautiful thing ever written because it gives us a glimpse of what that perfect world looked like. That this world with no sin, with no brokenness, with no conflict, and and God actually came down and walked with the man and the woman in the garden. I think it's a glimpse of what heaven might look like. But then Genesis 3, we mess it all up. A selfish decision takes place, and and suddenly the world is broken, and, and, and all of that perfect world is gone. The toxicity came in and poisoned it, and we're still living in that world today. And yes, Christ has come and he has redeemed us to God, but our world is still broken and poisoned today. And we still see broken people, toxic situations, and we still see relationships fail with tragic regularity. Every day we see this happen. But it's also worth pointing something out, that not every bad relationship is truly a toxic relationship. Sometimes it's just a bad fit. Or it's just bad chemistry between the two people. And I think too often what we have gotten in the habit of doing in our world today is we take every relationship that doesn't work and we call the other person toxic and we call them wrong and we cast them out of our lives. And that is just as unhealthy. In fact, I'll just say this. I think the worst problem in our society today, you can take this for what you want, the worst problem we have is that we have lost the ability to disagree. We can't do it. If somebody does not line up with me 100%, they are wrong. That's our mentality too often. You know who agrees with me 100%? Me. And even I don't do that sometimes. Even I argue with myself sometimes. No, we, we do this, right? We, we, we think about this. We think about some of the things we argue over or that we divide over. Sometimes it's things like parenting styles. Well, they don't discipline their kids the way I want. They're wrong. They let their kids get away with this, and it influences my kids. Or we argue about things that are socioeconomic divides, or, or maybe where we live, or, or maybe because somebody's a Mizzou fan, we, we cast them out, or, or a Broncos fan, or whatever. Okay? You might ha- find this next part hard to believe. Sometimes, sometimes we cast people out because of how they vote. I've actually seen it happen. Somebody is politically wrong, so we cast them out. It's crazy to think that we could actually do that. But we've lost the ability to disagree and to have a conversation where we both might grow and learn from one another. We forget that we're all unique because God made us all unique. Just because a relationship doesn't work out doesn't mean that it's toxic or poisonous. A couple of weeks ago, I asked you, how many of you married the very first person you ever dated? Some of you may have. I didn't. My wife didn't. I'm thankful that we didn't marry the first person that we dated. And it's not because that person was a toxic person. It just didn't work out. Sometimes two good things don't go well together. I like pizza. I like peanut butter and jelly. I'm not putting them together. Okay? If you want to do it, go ahead. I'll read your Facebook post about how it went, but I'm not trying it myself. So a toxic relationship is one that is poisonous. Not just one where there's not a great fit. So here's my second question I asked. I kind of followed up with that. Okay, so how do we identify a toxic relationship? If you say, well, maybe it's not actually toxic. Maybe it's just a bad fit. How do I identify it then? 
I think the easiest way to identify it is that a toxic relationship is one that's one-sided. Usually a toxic relationship involves somebody who is narcissistic and selfish, and all they care about is how they can benefit. And if you benefit, great, but that's not their concern. They really don't care about that. They're going to benefit, and if it's at your expense, so be it. That's what a narcissist does. They put self above all else. And so as I went through this, I did some research and I started thinking, man, there's got to be different ways this looks like, right? Like, like, like what does a toxic person look like? And I found this list from a couple of different uh, mental health websites. And I'm going to rattle through these really quick. If, if you want the full list, you can email me and I'll send you the whole detailed list with this. But as I go through this list, I think it's there in your bulletin as well. I want you to do two things. Number one, if you think that you might be in a toxic relationship and you're trying to figure it out, maybe this can help you identify that. But number two, I want you to look inside your own heart. Because I'll be very honest, as I was going through this, there were a couple of these, I'm like, oh, this is me. Or this could be me if I'm not careful. Because I could very easily fall into some of these traps. So here's what some toxic people might look like, or here's the different types of toxic people that we might come across in our lives. The first one's called the belittler, and as the name would suggest, they belittle others. Everything's an undercut at them or a backhanded compliment at them, and often they'll follow up the little insult or dig with, I'm just kidding, but they're not. And their goal is to chip away at your confidence or chip away at your self-esteem so that you start to lose the ability to make a decision. Uh, the second one is called the bad temper partner. Now, I'm not going to ask you point blank how many of you guys have a temper or how many of you ladies have a temper because probably all of us do to some degree. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the bad temper partner is the one who has a temper and knows it and knows how to use it. And they'll use it as an intimidation tactic. And they know what their triggers are, their partner knows what their triggers are, and they use it to discourage confrontation. Kind of like the Hulk, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. It's kind of that idea. The other person's not going to confront them because they don't want to get into that sort of, of, of reaction and response. There's the guilt inducer. That's the kind who knows how to make the other person feel guilty. And they, they use guilt in the other person to convey their own feelings and their own emotions towards somebody else. And what's dangerous about the guilt inducer is they also know how to lift that guilt off of somebody as a reward for good behavior. I think the guilt inducer, that, this is kind of the way we train dogs. You, you swat them on the nose when they're wrong, you give them a treat when they're good. We do this with people sometimes too. And that removal of guilt, it feels good and it can become addictive. And again, it's just another form of manipulation and control. There's the overreactor or the deflector. This is the person who makes way too big of a deal out of what you did. And they make you feel guilty for it. And when the, the guilt comes back their way, they're good at deflecting it in other directions. And they might accept some guilt, but they're not going to be guilty by themselves. Well, yeah, I was wrong, but I was wrong because this person was wrong over here first. And they deflect and they deflect and they, they, they misdirect and they ignore. And eventually, sometimes that lack of confrontation It'll build and fester, and eventually it'll boil over. There's the overdependent partner. This is somebody who needs every ounce of energy you have, and they're the type who don't like to make decisions. Now, I'm not saying that 
you, you have to make every decision. That's not what I mean. Like some of you will get in the car after you leave here and you're going to go home before you go watch the game or, or you're going to stop and get something to eat before you go home to watch the game and you're going to ask your wife, where do you want to eat? Well, I don't care. You decide. That's not what I mean, okay? We do that every time we get in the car to go eat. This is the kind of person who won't make a big decision because they don't want to get straddled with the blame if it goes wrong. And so they force the other person to do it. And then they make sure the other person knows they, they picked wrong if it goes wrong. That creates anxiety and exasperation in the other partner. On the flip side, there's the underdependent partner or the overly independent partner. This is the one who, who can't be straddled with any kind of control whatsoever, even a commitment. And, and I mean that even as a commitment of, hey, do you want to come over Thursday night? I don't know what I got going on yet. And they just can't be burdened with that commitment that they make. They'll, they'll leave you hanging. They're, they're unreliable. Again, they wear you out. They can be exhausting. Uh, number seven, there's the user. This might be the most common type. The user's the kind who is all take and little to no give. And they'll give so long as it's going to directly benefit them. But, but you've probably seen the user. The user's the kind who is in some sort of position of power or authority over the other. And they, they reward the other by letting you be a part of their life. And they remind you how lucky you are. Because there's others who would like to do that. And again, they'll give, but it's only when they're going to get more in return. And the second you no longer have use to them, you no longer have value to them, and they'll cast you out. And the last one I listed there might be the most dangerous. It's the paranoid or possessive controlling type. It's the jealous type. Sometimes jealousy can look cute early on in a relationship, but it can grow to become extremely toxic and dangerous because it's a person who has to know everything you're doing all the time. They want to track everything you're doing. They have no trust in you. And this is dangerous because often this is somebody who has been hurt in the past and they can't trust anymore. And so they need you all to themselves. They'll actually chip away at your relationships with other people so that you have, uh, they have you all to themselves. And, and, and this is, again, the kind where we see trauma and, and toxic relationships spoiling other relationships. Maybe you've heard the phrase that hurt people hurt people. When we're wounded, we become like animals, and sometimes we hurt the very people who are trying to help us heal and move on. But that's the types of, of identifying marks in a toxic relationship. So let's get to the next question. This might be the biggest question where I started from the very beginning. This might actually be the question I typed into to Google when I first started all of this, what does scripture tell us to do about toxic relationships? How does it tell us to respond? Again, that's the goal of everything that I preach and study. I want to know what the Bible says about it. I believe the Bible to be the final authority on all things, that it's God's living, breathing word. And guess what? The Bible <laughs> doesn't directly talk about toxic relationships. Like, if you look it up, there's nothing in here that says, okay, yeah, here, here it is, right here is the heading. Jesus talks about toxic You're not going to find that. But what the Bible has no short of is toxic people. Every chapter in the Bible, almost, you're going to find a toxic person or a toxic relationship. One of the, the greatest examples of this is King Saul from the Old Testament. Uh, Saul, if you might remember, was the first king of Israel, and he looked the part. He was tall, he was handsome, he was athletic, he was a warrior, he was a leader, he was all the things that they thought they wanted. And he did a good job for a while, until he 
disobeyed God and rejected God, and God rejected him. So God goes and finds his replacement in David. And you might know the story. We're going to be in 1 Samuel for just a bit if you want to follow along here. But, but David, in 1 Samuel 17, David uh, goes and fights Goliath. And he defeats Goliath. And Israel notices that. And Saul sends him to war. And David goes to war in chapter 18. And, and he, he defeats ten times as many men as Saul had. And Israel notices that. And he strolls back into town and they throw him quite the victory parade. And they make a big deal about how many men he took down in his battles. And Saul says, they didn't do that for me. Not to that extent. They're making a bigger deal about David than me. And this is Saul's response in, in chapter 18, verse 8. He says, this made Saul angry. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And then you read on just a few verses later, they're hanging out in the palace together and, and David is playing his harp for Saul and Saul just like snaps and throws his spear at David, misses him, it hits the wall. And Saul apologizes and, and I, you know what, I just snapped, that's not really me. And then the very next chapter, David's hanging out playing his harp for Saul and Saul snaps and throws his spear at him again and misses and this time David takes off and runs into the mountains and hides and Saul chases him and hunts him down. And we get to, to chapter 24 eventually, and, and David is hiding in a cave from Saul. And as he's hiding, this is actually one of my favorite parts of the Bible. This will show you my maturity level here. David's hiding in the cave. Saul comes in because he has to go to the bathroom. And so Saul comes in to do what he has to do. And he is literally caught with his pants around his ankles. And David's right behind him. And David could have taken him out like that, and nobody would have ever noticed. But David lets him go. He has compassion on him. He lets him walk out of there. And as Saul leaves the cave, David comes out. He's like, yo, I could have killed you, and I didn't. And this is Saul's response. Like, he's caught off guard. And in chapter 24, verse 17, he says this, You are a better man than I am, for you have repaid me good for evil. Yes, you've been amazingly kind to me today. Look how he goes on with this even further. Uh, there in verse 18, uh, he, he tells him, um, who else, or he says, for when the Lord uh, put me in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away with uh, when he had him in his power? May the Lord reward you for the kindness you've shown me today. And he goes on to say this, and now I realize that you are surely going to be king and the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. That seems pretty convincing, right? David, I am so sorry I chased you. Forgive me, it'll never happen again. Spoiler alert, it happens again. He keeps chasing David intent on killing David. And a couple of chapters later, Saul and his men are sleeping in a field and David strolls up and he grabs Saul's spear and he's like, man, I could do this right now, but I'm not going to, which is great. David like steals all of his stuff, but he doesn't kill him. And Saul wakes up and David's like, yo, I could have killed you again, but I didn't. And Saul's like, man, I'm so sorry. You're a better man than me. I'm not ever going to do this again. Does this pattern sound familiar to anybody? Like there's a lot of heads nodding. I'm assuming you've experienced something like this. Because I think that we all have. And let me just say this. If this pattern for you is all too familiar, I am sorry that you're dealing with this. I really, really am. Because we weren't meant to live this way. 
And while the Bible doesn't directly tell us about a toxic relationship, the Bible does lay out for us what to do when we find ourselves in David's shoes. When we're being chased over and over by somebody who is, is, is off the mark, somebody who is broken and hurting and toxic like Saul was. And, and so what I want to do is just give you two basic steps to respond. If this is you, if you're David in this story, here's what you do. Number one, turn to God. Turn to God. David is, is on the run. He's in the mountains of, of Israel, you know, running from Saul. And in the midst of this, David writes a psalm. He actually wrote several. But he writes a Psalm 27 while he's, he's running from Saul. Here's what it says. The Lord is my light and my salvation. So why should I be afraid? You think David was afraid? This man is trying to kill him. He's got an entire army chasing after David. He has every right to be afraid, and he probably is. But he knows God's got him. He says, Who, why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress protecting me from danger. So why should I tremble? Centuries later, Israel has been taken over and, and made captive of, of Babylon, maybe the most toxic society that's ever lived, that we've ever seen on this earth. And while they're in Babylonian captivity, uh, another psalmist writes this, Psalm 147, that God heals the brokenhearted and he bandages their wounds. Folks, hear me on this. Only the healing power of God can truly restore a broken heart. Your creator, who perfectly knitted you together in the womb, can stitch your broken uh, scars and wounds. I can tell you that from my own life, I've had moments where I, like you, have been hurt. And some of these are in my not-so-distant past. And some of these were by people in the church that I was doing ministry with. People that I was extremely close to. Best friends hurt me in ways that I never saw coming. And I can remember sitting in my office. I can remember those moments where I felt like I had no one crying out, God, why are you letting this happen? I'm doing everything you asked me to do, and, and I'm getting beat up for it. Why? By the people who are supposed to be here doing this with me and protecting me. And I can tell you, there were moments... I'm looking around going, God, do you even care? Do you even care? Or is this my sign that I'm just supposed to move on? And I, I got to be honest, I, I know better. I know God's right there with me. But in those moments, I didn't hear his voice or feel his touch. And you know this, that there's times in life when only a certain person's touch or voice will work. My kids... There's times that only my touch or only Jennifer's touch will work. That's it. You might be able to offer them some comfort, but they need their mom or they need their dad. There's times that we need God and that despite our best efforts with each other and our best intentions with each other, we just need God. So if you're hurting, you may not hear him or see him or feel him. He may not appeal to your senses. He's there. Turn to him. Don't, don't give up on him. Because society is good at telling you he doesn't care. Society is good at telling you he's not there. He's not even real. And maybe that person that's in your life that's doing this to you is telling you that. In fact, one of the biggest lies I think we can get from the enemy 
is when somebody tells us, stop making a big deal about that. It's not a big deal. And we start hearing that over and over. It's not a big deal. And you know what you eventually start to believe? I'm not a big deal. I don't matter. All my issues don't matter, so that means I don't matter. And God hasn't taken care of this yet, so, so obviously I don't matter. Let me just tell you, the scripture tells you otherwise. Hebrews chapter 4, it tells us to come boldly to the throne of God. Boldly. That's my favorite part of that verse. It doesn't say, come in timidly and knock on the door and make sure he's home. No, we boldly approach the throne of God with confidence because he is the God who created us. It's, it's hard to be bold when you feel marginalized. It's hard to be bold when you're told that you're worthless. But let me just tell you this, folks. God created you. He loves you, and he died on the cross for you. And there is nothing about you that is too insignificant for him to care about. Nothing. We come boldly. And beyond that, we are told to bring all of our cares and worries to him. 1 Peter chapter 5, it says that. Give all your worries and cares to God because he cares about you. There's no asterisk with that. Well, like there's no fine print. There's no footnote that says bring all your cares so long as they're like above a four on the scale of badness. No, bring them all. Every bit of baggage that you have, leave it at the foot of the cross. Don't carry it around anymore. None of it is too small for him. So if you're hurting, turn to him. That's the number one step. Here's number two, and this is the hard one. You have to extend forgiveness. That's hard. It's hard. It's hard when you've been hurt by someone to forgive that person. I'll be the first to say that's one of the things that is so much easier for me to stand here and tell you to do rather than do myself. But it's hard. I'm not going to get too much into this because Brad talked about this last week. And again, if you missed that, go watch it or listen to it. In fact, if you did watch it or hear it, if you were here, if you watched it online, go watch it or listen to it again. It was rich. It was good on dealing with forgiveness. But what I want to do instead today isn't go over all the things that forgiveness is. I want to hit on two points Brad didn't make and tell you what forgiveness is not. Because sometimes these are the things that we don't think about. Or the things maybe we weren't taught in Sunday school when we were kids. Because forgiveness means that we, we, we release that anger, we release that right for revenge on the other person. But here's the first one that forgiveness is not. Forgiveness does not mean that we have to become vulnerable to more abuse. Okay, there's a difference there. Forgiveness does not mean that we set ourselves up to get beaten on again. That is not what the phrase turn the other cheek means. You, maybe you were taught that as a kid in Sunday school. I was. That is not what that means. I'll teach on that some other time. It's actually a fun insult towards people <laughs> on turning the other cheek. If you have endured physical or mental abuse at the hands of a spouse or a family member or a friend or, or anybody... Forgiveness does not mean that you have to put yourself back in that situation and ask for more. In fact, I just want to say this to you right now, and I hope you hear my heart through all of this. If you are currently, 
in a physically abusive relationship, get out of that immediately. Get some distance. Go seek intervention. You can talk to us on staff. You can go across the street here and talk to them across the street. Talk to a counselor, somebody. But don't sit there and continue to put yourself in life-endangering situations. Please hear me in that. If you're in a situation that you feel is verbally abusive or emotionally abusive or, or, or mentally, talk to someone. Get a counselor involved. Get, get a professional who has spent years perfecting this craft and learning how to, to deal with these situations. Get them involved. Now understand what I'm saying here. I'm not giving you a free pass out of a marriage. That's not what I'm doing. If you're in a difficult marriage, number one, welcome to life. I've yet to meet a marriage that doesn't have difficult times or difficult moments. I'm not saying, hey, here's a free card because you think you're getting picked on. That's not what I'm doing. You should leave no stone unturned in an attempt to restore and reconcile that marriage. Okay, so please hear me out on that. But sometimes you need a little bit of breathing room. Okay? But again, talk to us, please. And if you are dealing with a difficult marriage right now, be here next week. Please. That's our topic next week. Brad's going to talk all about what the Bible talks about marriage. And we're going to get into what marriage really means and looks like. So please, please be here next week. But forgiveness does not mean you set yourself up for more abuse. If you've been in, in a business with, with a friend and that friend has stolen from you, you don't have to go back into business with that person. Don't loan them more money if they've stolen from you in the past. That, that, that's... That's not what it means. Forgiveness is not followed by a requirement to trust those that hurt you all over again. The second thing forgiveness does not mean is it doesn't mean that you forget about your past. You've probably heard the phrase, I've heard it my whole life, to forgive and forget. <laughs> I can forgive. I don't ever forget. I'm sure you're the same way. I can go back 30 years to go to grade school. I can still hear some of the things that were said to me in grade school. I still remember the things that were said and done to me in middle school and high school. I'm sure you do too. Things I talked about that happened a few months ago before we moved out here, I will never forget those moments. I'll never forget that feeling of having people turn on me. And that's okay. That's okay because I don't want to relive that. I don't want to experience that again. But I can grow from that. And sometimes, as much as we don't like to do it, we need to face our pain and our trauma because we grow through it. And we can become more refined by that fire. You know, there's the old, the old adage, it takes pressure to turn coal into a, a diamond. We become refined through that, and we can become the person God created us to be. So we don't forget, we use it. And you know who showed us this more than anybody else? Jesus. Remember what he says as he's nailed to the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You think Jesus forgot about the cross? No, in fact, when he comes back after the resurrection, he teaches on the cross. He uses it as an example. And he shows us to use it as well too. That's why we take communion every single week. It's not because it's a tradition. We don't take it out of ritual. We take it because we want and need, and I know I personally want and need that weekly reminder of what Christ did on the cross for me. That pain and that suffering and that torment that he took that he certainly didn't deserve for me and for you. 
I don't ever want to forget that because he told us to remember that and to do it all the time, remembering him as we did. And so when we look at that, what does scripture tell us to do? We turn to God and we, we forgive. But here's my next question, and this is one that I came to as I went on throughout the week that, that became a little bit more and more real to me, was this fourth question that popped up is, well, what do I do if I realize that I'm actually the toxic person? Because I think I can be that way sometimes. And if you're being honest, you probably can be too. You know how I know that? Because scripture tells me that we all are. Romans chapter 3. We have all sinned and we all fall short of his standard. And I love how Paul writes this because he starts in the past tense. For everyone has sinned. And then he goes to the present tense and we fall short. In other words, I have messed up and I am still messing up because I'm a broken, flawed, sinful person that's redeemed by Christ's blood. But I'm still a broken, flawed person living in a broken and flawed world. And I'm going to sin and I'm going to fall. And when I live with that in my heart, there's going to be toxicity that comes out. And if I try to convince myself otherwise, I'm not being honest with myself. In fact, it says that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. He says, if we claim to have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. So if you claim that you're above being potentially toxic or being potentially damaging to other people, you're lying to yourself and, and honestly, you're lying to others and to God too. We're all susceptible to this. It can happen to any one of us. So what happens if we do? What do you do if you realize, man, I messed up and I hurt somebody? And maybe it was a one-time thing, or maybe I looked back and thought, man, I was messing up for quite a while. I hurt this person over and over for quite a while. What do we do? Well, the first thing we do is we ask for forgiveness. As I said earlier, we need to extend it, but sometimes we need to be the one to ask for it. And it tells us in this following verse here in verse 9 that if we confess our sins to him, just said we're sinful, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. So we, ex we offer, we ask forgiveness from God, but then I think we need to ask for forgiveness from the person we hurt too. And we need to do all that we can to work to reconcile that relationship. Now again, Brad talked about reconciliation a couple of weeks ago. And I want to encourage you, go back and re-listen to that sermon. It was good. It was rich. It really broke into all the aspects of how we approach restoring and reconciling a relationship that we have, have broken and damaged. But folks, that's why I think it's so important that we have what we have right here, that we have strong, healthy community. That's why being here on Sundays is so important for us. That's why being in small groups is so important and serving together is so important because it's in those atmospheres, it's in those communities that we can grow and foster relationships with healthy, mature Christians. They can help us in our walk because when we have those people around us, we can have that accountability that we need where they can say, hey, I think you're starting to get off the mark here. And they're judging us not to condemn us or be judgmental. They're judging us because they know where we're headed. And they let us pull them back in the right direction too. And they can say, Kurt, you're starting to get off the mark here. You're showing a little, maybe a couple of toxic traits here that you need to get those out of, out of the way. 
We need that in our lives. We need those people who can be honest with us to help us, to help us grow. And I think that leads us into the final question, kind of helps us answer the final question, how can we protect our relationships from becoming toxic? My answer I wrote down here was two words. And maybe, maybe it's overly simplistic. Like, like maybe I'm naive. I don't know. I probably am. But the two ways I think we can best keep our relationships from being toxic are to wrap them in humility and ground them in love. I think it's that simple. The Apostle Paul lays this out for us. In Philippians chapter 2, he's talking about humility. And he defines it this way. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Think of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. I've heard this said many times. I don't know where the phrase came from, but humility is, is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. It's putting others above you. It's putting others' needs above you. Humility could be defined as, as a 50-50 give and take. And, and I want to say this to you all. When I'm talking with a young married couple or a couple that wants to get married, I, I lay this out and say, you need to understand marriage is not always a 50-50 give and take. There are times and there will be times when one side has to give more than the other, and that's okay. Because you have to give knowing that you're giving to help that person out. The first two years of our marriage, I hardly saw my wife. She was in nursing school. I knew what her life was going to be like more than she did, I think. <laughs> I'd watched my mom go through it. She would apologize. I'm sorry, I can't be there. I said, you're fine. It's fine. After that, I went back to school. She hardly saw me. We knew they were for seasons. We knew that there was, there was an in line with this. And, and I said this in the 8 o'clock service, and somebody, somebody came back to me afterwards and said, marriage isn't 50-50, it's 100-100. And really, all of our relationships should be that way. It's a 100% give and take from both sides. That's humility. Humility is giving, not caring what you get in, re in return from another person because you're building them up. And so we want them to be wrapped and bathed in humility, but our relationships need to be grounded and rooted in love. And I love how Paul defines love because he defines it in a way that many of you have heard. You've probably seen this on a, on a plaque on the wall or a, a, a home decor piece. But he says this in 1 Corinthians 13, that love is patient and kind. That love isn't jealous or boastful or proud or rude that it doesn't demand its own way, it's not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It doesn't rejoice about injustice, but it rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, it never loses faith, it's always hopeful, and it endures through every circumstance. You want to avoid a toxic relationship. You ditch being selfish and you embrace being selfless. That was the love Christ showed for us. And I can tell you this, that nobody's ever going to do to you what you do to Christ on a daily basis. And I tell you that because I tell myself that every day. <laughs> nobody's going to hurt me the way I hurt him. And yet there's no way that 
anybody can ever do for me what he did for me. So as, as we wrap this up, I'm going to just slide us right in. I don't normally do this. I know Brad does this way. I don't normally do this way. We're going to slide this right into communion. And if you've got the communion cups, you can go ahead and have those. If not, you can grab them. But we're going to pray in just a moment, and then I'll, we'll go into this. But this is a, an opportunity for us to kind of look at what Jesus did for us. Because it was in that moment on the cross that he overlooked my toxicity. And he loved me anyway. And it was in that moment on the cross that he laid out the path for me to offer forgiveness to others, to be selfless, and to look to others. So as we step into these next few moments, I just want to pray over you. We would be encouraged to focus on him. Remember what he did for us as we move forward in our lives. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus. We are so thankful for his sacrifice that he made for us on the cross. God, I pray in these next few moments as we commune with you, God, that we would not let any distractions take place, that it would just be us and you. God, let us never forget the cross. Let us never forget what Jesus did for us. God, we pray in these next few moments as you are with us that we can bless you and honor you. And God, as we work with others and we be with others throughout the week, God, that we would show the love to them that Jesus showed to us. We pray this in his name. Amen.